Um, have you one of y'all had those white claws? Not yet. I've heard there's. I heard there are no laws when you're drinking white claws. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the newest comic duo, Davis, a dabbler in many disciplines with a voice that can soothe and persuade. Mike, a fanatical specialist with a mouth like a bullhorn, fueled by strong opinions and a compulsion to share them with microphones and comics in hand. They are Jacks of Trades. Greetings, comic book connoisseurs, and welcome to Jacks of Trades. On Jacks of Trades, we read, review, and rate trade paperbacks and graphic novels by major and independent comic publishers. We are not experts, just amateurs with opinions on the finer things in life. Hi, this is Davis. And this is Greg. Ah, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, today I'm sipping on a 93 Bordeaux and enjoying a nice block of mimolet with some duck prosciutto. Uh, Gregory, how are you doing today, sir? Um, I'm going to have to stand against the injustice of you fabricating what is happening in front of you. I cannot allow such a... (laughs) Yep, that's a good point. That is a really good point. Um, Psych, Mike's not here, but we're not getting too classy uh, here on the Jacks of Trades. But this is Jacks of Trades. Welcome back. Mike's not here. He's in the Palmetto State. And, well, we're keeping the show rolling. Uh, Greg is stepping out from behind the booth. For the most part, and in a little bit of a co-host role right now. Yeet. Yeet, yes. As the youths say. The youths do love yeeting. They do love yeeting. I I found out uh, Kobe is whenever you're there for precision and accuracy, but yeeting is for strength and effect. I really like this academic breakdown of these terms. Oh, yes. I, I'm really enjoying uh, what the Facebook and what social media has done to the vernacular of Americans. <laughs> so... Greg and I have been talking about this book. Well, I've been talking about this book since before it came out. And Greg found out about it. Uh, apparently, I inspired his passion to read this book. Oh, 100%. You, you were literally the reason I picked it up. And we're finally reading the one book that Greg and I constantly talk about it to this day, even almost a year after it came out. And that is Exit Stage Left. The Snagglepuss Chronicles. So, uh, Greg, why don't you give us some uh, some quick stats about this uh, this author and artist that we have here? So, Mark Russell actually has been he's got a long and sorted comic career, but he's really been cutting his teeth with these Hanna Barbera IPs. Right. Uh, DC and Hanna Barbera reach an agreement. Uh, they basically license out all their IPs to right. DC. I believe Hanna Barbera is owned by Time Warner, the same company. That would that make owns a lot of sense. DC. Yes, and so. They've basically, a lot of you would know them from, as Davis has described, kind of like Saturday morning cartoons, but they kind of predate our childhood if you're not right. like 35 or older. Right, right, right. right. So it's like the Flintstones, uh, the Jetsons. Speed Buggy. Scooby-Doo, Wacky mm-hmm. Racers. And we actually reviewed, well, Mike and Davis actually reviewed issues one through six of Dastardly and Muttley. Right. And I would say that there's been like a 50-50 Win loss on these, like some of them have been really good, but oh yeah, across the board, basically all the best ones have been written by Mark Russell, by Mark Russell, pretty much. And Mark uh, Russell going with his, yeah, yeah, with his, with starting with his two arcs that he did of the Flintstones, twelve mm-hmm. issues total. Uh, they're all fantastic. Uh, this six issue, the Snagglepuss Chronicles run, and then most recently his Wonder Twins yeah. run, which is on the new Wonder uh, Comics imprint. Right that DC is doing. Uh, I've been keeping up with the Wonder Twins comic just because Mark Russell has yeah. been writing it and it has not disappointed. Yeah, he basically has a no-veiled social commentary aspect to all of his writing. It, it's it's He has very nuanced, beautiful writing that takes a lot of historical context or just whatever material he's engaging in, he really clearly pulls it in. But the actual core stories are not subtle. Right. It's, it's the, the Flintstones is about monogamous relationships, Barney and... Um, uh, Betty. Betty, thank you, and Fred and Wilma in monogamous relationships in a polygamous society, which right. is basically the fl- it's basically an LGBT commentary. Mm-hmm. And then Neanderthals are basically immigrants and minorities and how they're treated in society. Yes. It takes two seconds to pick up on this. Absolutely. It takes two seconds to pick up on it, but the overall thought experiment, thought process yeah. with it kind of brings in everything from whether you're pro or anti or you know 
oblivious. Or just living your life. Yeah. yeah. Or just oblivious to it or ambivalent is that the i don't know it's the sure some people sure. just like they're kind of like oh it's a thing but like they can't there's a lot of things we should all concern ourselves right. with we should be we should be concerned with war-torn countries and people dying like that is a very human and important thing but it's impossible to live your life and concern yourself with everything that was worthy of right. your attention it's it's just not it's just human nature so mm-hmm. i won't <laughs> i'll let that i'll let that marinate for a little bit yeah. but check it out obviously <laughs> yeah yes. so mark russell though is does these beautiful social commentary pieces definitely is what he's known for and he's really been the back backbone of any successful Hanna-Barbera IPs in the DC comic world. Yes. And, Minus, I think, yeah. Adventure Quest. Yeah, there's been like a few others, but he's he's definitely largely responsible for the high reception of these books. Mm-hmm. Eisner-nominated work. His artist, Mike Feehan, 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 I believe Feehan, uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing the two of them at San Diego Comic-Con recently with our Wodies over at Nolan Nerdcast. Shout out. So, Did you say Wodies? Yeah. Love it. So... What's so crazy is we got in there and Matt does a pretty good job of like at least having a cursory knowledge. He doesn't want to come in and sound like he doesn't know the person. He's mm-hmm. If he hasn't read it, he does a good job of researching it. And he just goes, Mike, I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't see a lot of your work. Like, what do you do? Turns out this is his ma- first major series. Oh. He's done a lot of editing. He's done mm-hmm. a lot of like screening stuff. He's been steeped in the world of comics. Right. But as an artist he got tapped for this and and it was funny because even his interview he was like you know if i stop for a second and really think about where i am right now i'd probably have a panic attack right he says it happened so fast and i really didn't expect this and in a lot of ways i thought this whole idea was absurd but then i heard mark russell was attached and i knew it was going to be great mark russell is an eisner nominated author but not for this book right and this book though was it won a glad award for outstanding comic it was very well critically received mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways was a crazy breakout. I mean, this was not something that Snagglepuss is not exactly inspire right. strong cultural and like weighty emotion from people, I would think. I, and, and it was funny because in the interview with him as well with Mark, he said that first thing he asked was, who is Snagglepuss? And the first thing that came to mind was gay icon. Mm-hmm. And Snagglepuss as a gay icon it's kind of like a recent thing. It was like this funny thing that kind of blew up on social media a few yeah, like, years ago. Like the Babadook. Right. The Babadook as well, right? Yes. And on top of that, he said his catchphrases are related to theater. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to make him related to theater. Mm-hmm. And he basically started building out from there. And so I'll, I'll let us get further into the story for us. But like it was the whole thing being that he just looked at this character, kind of broke down what is Snagopus, took the, the cartoon character right. and morphed it into something unrecognizable based on the core elements of the character. Right. And so it's going to be a really fun discussion going into Snagglepuss, but that's the idea. But Mark Russell is a Eisner-nominated writer. We got a Fian who is basically no major series experience, and they blow up with this comic. Right. So enough about us just congratulating Mark Russell for being (laughs) the fantastic writer that he is. Let's get into this book. So if you are reading this in a trade format, which I read it in single issues... Greg read it in the trade. Uh, they actually have a half comic in the beginning. Yeah. Which was originally done in the back of the Suicide Squad Banana Splits crossover issue. So I bought that just for the sake of getting this Snagglepuss comic because oh, I nice. knew it was going to be fantastic. So in this brief little supplement, it's basically Snagglepuss is in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Wah! Wah! And they're saying how, listen, you know, you're, you're kind of helping the Ruskies out here by you being this, this writer that's not making these Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith show plays and everything. Like, How dare you show people with broken households? Right. How dare you show people that actually have, you know, things wrong with them? Uh, one of the best lines is, it's like, who are some of these subverses and foreigners that you work with? It's like, well, that's easy. There's Socrates, Buddha, Jesus of Nazareth, and just kind of like puts them in their place and kind of throws their own rhetoric back at them. And he has a little anecdote where he talks about how he was dressed as a clown and while he was performing in a play, backstage something catches on fire and he runs out on stage and tells everyone there's a fire and he is laughed at because I think it's all part of the play. And it kind of shows this idea of, son, in life you do not fight battles because you expect to win. You fight them merely because they need to be fought. 
And that is how the prequel of this book begins before we delve into the Chronicles of Snagglepuss. So, Greg, there's a lot of uh, historical context going on right now because it takes place in the majority of the book is in 1953. Mm -hmm. So my dad was three years old at that point in time. You and I weren't even Not even an idea. (laughs) Yeah, we weren't even concepts in our grandparents' eyes at that point. So... Uh, can you give us a little bit of cultural and or historical context before we delve into this book? Sure. And like, you know, we kind of glossed over the little eight page mini issue, but it's basically just him being interrogated about his work. And this is actually a very real moment in American history with a very fake character. So we have the House Un-American Activities Committee, also known as HUAC, H-U-A-C. And to understand kind of the context of this book, you really need to understand the House Un-Americans Activities Committee. This is a real committee. That was the actual name of it. And it started actually at the turn of the century and a little after the turn of the century. So the House Un-American Activities Committee was initially called the Overman Committee. It was formed in 1918 as a subcommittee of the Committee on the Judiciary. Initially, the committee was concerned with investigating pro-German elements in the American liquor industry. you got to remember, mm-hmm. this is World War I. Right. So basically, we saw this in World War II, right, with the Japanese internment camps. You're at right. war with a group, and you immediately seek out, like, ooh, who, who domestically is going to be a threat? Right. And so this committee was very concerned with Germans, and the liquor and alcohol industry right. had a lot of Germans here from immigration. Hofbrau? No, that's hoof beer. That's American, damn it. <laughs> So that was kind of their main focus in the beginning, but it very quickly with the end of World War I, especially due to the fall of the Russian Empire and the rise of the Soviet Union, their mm-hmm. attention turned towards Bolshevism. Yes. The committee's investigations gave rise to what we call the First Red Scare. Uh, this was a period post-World War I where politicians, voters, uh, advocacy groups feared a Bolshevik takeover of the U.S. You have to remember, you know, we're about to get into the Depression a little bit, but... You, you do have workers' rights are growing, and workers' rights are heavily associated with socialism. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's, and so people were concerned about these elements growing, and you actually had like candidates like Eugene Debs and other people who were growing socialist parties in America. Mm-hmm. And so the American and Helen government— Keller. Yep. And so they were very concerned with these quote-unquote subversives. Yes. The thing about the first Red Scare is that, and the reason I kind of mentioned is that this lays the groundwork for the social fears and like heavy legal ramifications as we go into the 20th century that we still actually see play out today. In 1930, the committee really ramped up its efforts and became far more known in the public eye. Congressman Hamilton Fish, yes, Hamilton Fish III, a Republican from New York, focused heavily on rooting out communists and communist sympathizers in the U.S., and this becomes the backbone rhetoric of the committee. During this time, it was commonly known as the Fish Committee. They really targeted groups such as the ACLU and communist candidates running for elected office in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The committee continued on through the 30s and 40s under various names. It kept changing over and over and over again. Different people kind of took the helm. But they became very focused on Nazis and Nazi propaganda during World War II, even in the late 30s, rising up to the war. Good. But they never stopped focusing on communism. Mm -hmm. They were always worried about it. Even as we were allied with the Soviet Union, it was always seen as this possible kind of wedge into our society that was going to disrupt democracy and capitalism. The 40s and 50s are where Huak really peaked or reach its greatest lunacy, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. And this is what really informs our story. It's here we enter the second Red Scare and the Lavender Scare, which are very, very related, somewhat distinct. During the 40s, there was special attention paid to Hollywood and artists and generals, the theater scene, things like that. Uh, Stories and creators that were considered deviant, that's Mm -hmm. basically a dog whistle for gay or just any sort of alternative lifestyle Mm -hmm. that doesn't fit the mold in a nuclear family union, straight, white picket fence America. Right. Um, Even if they were like, you know, kind of, oh, sexually active women. Yeah, yeah. You know, people that were... African-American, any other people of color at that point as well. Interracial marriage, like anything. It's just considered deviant culture. Um, They were heavily targeted, and they were also linked to communists and communist sympathizers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They kind of drew this weird thread between the two in a lot of ways, that if you're a deviant, you're somehow more likely to be a communist, ergo you could be a threat to the U.S. If nothing else, you're unraveling the moral fabric of America with your art and the media you're putting out. Mm Mm-hmm. So many were required to cease their work or were even subpoenaed, and they had to answer to the government for what can really only be described as 
cultural crimes, I'm doing Bay Air quotes, against the U.S. Huwak basically threatened anyone who supported or worked with these artists with potential subpoenas of their own and demanded that these people turn in the names of known communists and sympathizers as well as, quote, deviants and subversives. In this book, you'll see the term deviant, subversive, over and over and over and over again. This is the context for our story today, and for anyone who's curious, Huwak really lost steam in the mid to late 50s and was completely shut down in 1975. My last note I'm going to make is that a common mistake, and one I made for a very long time until Mm -hmm. basically this book, was linking Huwak and McCarthyism slash Joseph McCarthy, which was a really stupid mistake because he was a senator. Is the junior House Senator, Junior Senator from Wisconsin, as um, as Everard Murrow loved to painfully say over and over again, uh, he was not even part of the House, but he ran a very parallel campaign mm-hmm. that informed Huwak's efforts. This is also what books like the the, the Crucible, right? Very famous play mm-hmm. um, about the Salem witch trials. Very thin veiled attempt to attack McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. He actually was in charge of the Subversive Activities Control Board. Uh, by the way, you should definitely check out the movie Good Night and Good Luck. Really, really awesome depiction of this era. And Edward R. Murrow at CBS is basically one man media war against McCarthy and McCarthyism. So, point being, Huwak is kind of the backdrop. Snagglepuss is a target in this. The eight-page short issue before this kind of depicts him being put to the grinder by them and him being the sarcastic, hilarious character he is, fending mm-hmm. them off and kind of winning jokes to kind of downplay what's going on. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Greg. That was that was eloquently put. I could not have done it better. I would <laughs> not have done it better. Um, and with that being said, you ready for a speed read? Now, Mike may not be here, but I think I'm capable of running a stopwatch. I, I agree. So we are going to put, I'm going to put 59 seconds on the clock. Ooh, okay. Give you a beat. All right. Don't worry, I'll give fun. you a beat, baby. All right. So all right. Uh, 60 seconds on the clock for you, Davis. Mm-hmm. Going to fill in the void of Mike here. And three, two, one, go. Issue one, exit stage left. 1953, a couple is getting dinner and it is late for a show. Enter Snagglepuss, a southern playwright, playwright living in New York on the last night of his hit play, The Hot is a Kennel of Thieves. He's basically Tennessee Williams. After the play, he drops his wife off at their house and goes for his fate to a favorite watering hole, the Stonewall Inn, where he meets up with his boyfriend, Pablo, a, refu- a refugee from Cuba escaping the Batista regime. Meanwhile, one of Snaggle's fellow writers is being hunted down by the House Un-American Activities Committee for being a commie. Snagglepuss's friend Huckleberry Hound comes to visit after leaving his home state of Mississippi. Huck is another author and is pretty much William Faulkner. At the end of the show, the cup or in the end, the show the couple was late for was the execution of the Rosenbergs, a couple accused of being found guilty of selling nuclear secrets to communist Russia. 59 seconds. Well done. Oh man, I'd stumbled a lot during that one, but okay. But it's okay, let's, let's just finding your sea this. legs, man. We're getting going in three, what? two. One. Issue two, A Dog's Life. Gigi Allen is a government agent hell-bent on getting rid of subverses and degenerates in the American cinema and play scene. Snagglepuss has a new play and the lead actor isn't getting the role. Snagglepuss also visits an elderly man in an old folks home. Huckleberry isn't living his best life. He's living in a dingy apartment and eating TV dinners. Snaggle brings the actor to visit him to get inspiration. Huck was run out of his old town in Mississippi for being caught kissing a black man in the South. Yeah, big faux pas in the 50s. Huck tries to hit on a man in the beach afterwards. It doesn't work. Gigi meets with Snaggle, and he is not taking her threats. The actor gets it and finally starts to unlock his inner Huck. Snaggle is then ordered to appear in front of the Huck again. 32 seconds. Davis, you are killing it. I know you said you didn't even time these out. I'm just going to fill up here for a little bit of seconds here. So how about that beach scene? Yeah, that was brutal. Just like, are you here for, for pleasures of the flesh? Punch in the face. Three, two, one, go. Issue three, actors and stars. Snaggle and Hook are on a talk show. A star shows people who they wish to be. An actor shows them what they are. Everything starts to go to shit and Snagglepuss has to hire, has to help his friend Arthur sneak his secret lover, Marilyn, out of their apartment to make sure her boyfriend, Joe, doesn't get jealous. Arthur Miller, Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, it happened. Snaggle introduces Huck to the Stonewall so he can finally express himself as a gay man in New York. Pablo gets frustrated at Snaggle for not empathizing about the struggles of his people in Cuba. Snagglepuss throws a party afterwards and Huck has a love interest, a cop horse named Officer McGraw. Turns out the shitty actor in the play was Clint Eastwood the whole time. Well done. Another 32-second one. Quick fun fact from that interview with him. 
Uh, we talked about Stonewall and how the fact is he doesn't actually talk about the Stonewall rights in the comic. He's doing a really cool job of showing the trajectory to the Stonewall rights. Mm -hmm. Very, very fun, nuanced thing to go with in three, two, one. Issue four, Doomtown. Nuclear bombs and truth bomb drops in the beginning of this issue as we learn Snagglepuss's play is about the life of Huckleberry Hound and their childhood in Mississippi. Snagglepush pushes his fake wife away and also pushes Pablo away as he starts to ponder the different masks that he wears in his life. Huck and McGraw are in love and Huck starts to write again. Gigi tips off the police chief and has, a, has him raid the Stonewall Inn. McGraw is one of the officers in the raid. Instead of going to Stonewall, Stonewall Snagglepuss takes his faux wife and Pablo to dinner in order to bridge the gap of his world. Stonewall is raided and McGraw cracks Huck in the face with a billy club and arrests him to maintain his appearance as a cop. Gigi returns home to her roommate, and by roommate, I mean lover. That was an incredible, I, I, that was a very, very, very good, concise assessment of that episode. I'm, I'm going to give you that, man. That was a very, very good issue coverage there. Thank I you, really sir. liked what you said there. In three, two, one. Issue 5, opening night. Snagglepuss is at the end of his wits. He's ready to stand up to the whack in order to put them in their place. Huck is a social pariah after being outed and Snagglepuss meets with Gigi one more time before the hearing and agrees to comply in order to save Huck's reputation. While expressing this to his fake wife, she tells him that Huck has hung himself in his apartment. With his friend's blood on their hands, Snagglepuss decides to stand up to the panel and possibly throw away all that he's worked for. It's the opening night of his play, and as the drama of the play unfolds, Snagglepuss tells the Whack Committee that the world needs subverses and art. Without show business, politics steps in to fill the void. And that's when the world goes to hell. 40 seconds. Well done. Very, very tragic scene in the story. Oh, give you that. Absolutely brutal. What would you say uh, is your takeaway from that issue? Uh, takeaway from that issue is you, you, back, you back a cat into the corner, they're going to bat back. Ooh, I like that. In five, four, three, two, issue one. Issue six. Issue 6, Going Underground. Five years later, Snagglepuss has been blacklisted and no one will produce any of his plays. His mentee, Augie Doggy, wrote a book about Snaggle's life and is now famous. His ex-wife is now married to another Broadway person and Pablo is a revolutionary in Cuba. McGraw has fa was found out by another cop and lost his badge. He is now a cartoon star. He offers Snagglepuss a job, but he doesn't want to stoop down to television. The old man Snaggle has been visiting was his father, who never knew his son was visiting him. He, oh, what, uh, what, well, he dies, and Snaggle poses too forward to afford to bury him. Snaggle goes to the bar, and after talking to the old Stonewall, bar Stonewall bartender, he tells him, you don't fight the system to win. You fight it to show that it can be done. Snaggle eventually accepts the job, but only if Huck's son, Huck, can get a job as well. In the end, Snagglepuss assumes the name Snaggletooth in order to be, McGraw, um, be, order to be on McGraw's show and starts the next chapter of his life. Ooh, that was a close one. 54 seconds. Woo! Ooh, you did it. Is that it? Yep, that's, that's it. That's it. I was going to say, that's, that's the end. Six. Yep, that's Good it. Good job. Good job. Woo. Man, that was a... Uh... That was some of your better work, man. Like, you've done a pretty good job. Every one of these seems to get uh, tighter. And, uh, but I, I, again, that issue I said earlier, really, really strong work. I feel like if I listened to these, I would get the broad strokes pretty well. Oh, uh, the one about the talk show? The, I think it was issue after four. Right Doomtown. Right after Clint was. Yeah, Doomtown. Yeah. That was, uh, you nailed that one. Oh, man. Okay, so. Especially the, the bridging of his life. Yeah. Uh, that, that was uh, uh, very powerful. Yeah, that was, uh, again, I read this book as it came out. So, and I haven't read it. So you had a lot of time to let marinate it between issues a little bit. Yeah, a little time to marinate as well as I had to kind of go back and read some of the older, like the previous issue as well to kind of get myself back into sure, it. Sure, sure. And this is my first time reading this in a whole continuous story. It still gave me the same chills. This whole, okay, let's just delve <laughs> into it right now. So Mark Russell's writing with this whole thing as he's writing pretty much a Tennessee Williams story, yep. or sorry, about Tennessee Williams. This whole thing plays like, a southern gothic tragedy play yes it is fantastic uh you can even tell i don't know how much research he did into tennessee williams i don't know whether he read like cat on a hot tin roof in high school or just you know saw the marlon brando version of streetcar named desire but the plays that he writes that snagglepuss is writing feel like absolute complete 
Tennessee Williams plays. Well, how about that that single frame of my heart is a kennel of thieves before the curtain slam shut? I mean, that the, was basically streetcar of desire. Absolutely, especially <laughs> just just how dare you lie with that man? He's gonna get you a job. I'm leaving, mother. You're being a whore. Leaves. Man comes in. I got fired from my job. You, you trollop, how dare you? I know, but can you loan me some money? Get out, get out of my house. My heart is a kennel of thieves. Fan, absolute tastic. And then everything in the second play with just Huck's life yes. as he's happening there. It is, it, it, it was wonderful. It's, it's fantastic. And every single line of dialogue, as far as a, a, a quip, a retort, or a observation that yeah. Snagglepuss makes is just just steeped with Tennessee Williams. Yeah. And I will totally say, look, we love this book, but I do think some people get turned off. Like, people have got a little more nuance on his view of him, but one thing that Joss Whedon was really good at in mm-hmm. the 2000s and stuff with Buffy or Firefly or anything is that the dialogue felt very natural. Yes. Um, and he particularly punishes people for dropping one-liners that sound heroic. Yeah. So I always think of the scene in Serenity, you think you can lead the ship? And the guy goes, yes, I can. The guy just pauses. Well, you can't. Yeah. And the whole thing is basically like, this book and a lot of Mark Russell's work tends to be very monologue heavy. Mm-hmm. Very. Th- this is, and I think it's a very appropriate, considering we're using Tennessee Williams as a core, as a core subtext. Yeah, plays but, in general. Yeah. But it's heavy monologues. Um, it's a lot of explaining. Not as much exposition. Mm-hmm. A fair bit of show don't tell, but it's a fair bit of telling. Yeah. And I think for some people that can be a turnoff. Yeah. But I think in the context of a theater writer and a guy who is very eccentric, quote unquote gay, right? Like it's it's basically he's he's eccentric, but he's also often covering up his sexual proclivities. Yes. And he likes to make jokes and nods to the fact that he's gay to people who don't know that he is yes and it's and very like, like and so i think that the dialogue in that way you're saying like it's it's very strong and theatrical the whole you know plot structure in itself reads just like a play even, and then even his life is like a tennessee williams play the whole thing is like that even down to the character of huckleberry hound being this just his life he Never getting a break, never getting a chance. Everything just kind of sucks for Huck, the majority of this one. And we even, in the play, they even delve into his childhood about how it's one of those just, you can live this life, go right ahead. But me, Snagglepuss, I cannot live this life. Right. This is not the ma- This is not the mask that I want to wear. But then he goes to New York and does it anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, he ends up being, he wears the mask regardless of where he goes. And I think that's like, that duality is really fun mm-hmm. and very complicated too by the, the fact that he like, we'll get to his father, but I yeah. think that's a huge like that... monkey wrench in his self image. Like he shouldn't give a shit. Yes. He really shouldn't, Mm-mm. but. But he does. And I really feel with, uh, first of all, the fact that the air character is called Gigi Allen <laughs> after G.G. Allen, one of the most raunchy punk artists of all time. Like, he would go on stage, shit in his hand, and throw it at people while his band was performing. Like, the fact that that, that's just fun tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Absolutely. But I find Snagglepuss as a character, and a lot of the characters in here, they are that kind of Mm two-sided. Like, you have have G.G. Allen who's there saying, I'm a government agent. Uh, we need to get rid of these subversives. We need to get rid of the deviants, the degenerates. We need to get rid of all these people in their life. Like, they should not be in the media. But then she goes home and she is a lesbian. But it's also interesting that, like, as unsympathetic and shitty as she is, they take time. Well, they, Mark, and, you know, team take time to explain, like, you got to stop for a second and go, what threat does a play have? Right. And in some ways, you know, you laugh at it. You're like, well, it's, a, it's just a play. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like, we defend art with all our souls, right? right. We, the, the, we defend the right to be able to create. So clearly there's a value to it. And I think that it's very cool that they show the opposite end of it. We say mm-hmm. art informs culture. You could take I Dream of Genie. It doesn't matter. Everything informs our social moment. You could take any television, any newspaper, any movie from any period mm-hmm. and understand the cultural zeitgeist of the time. And... What I love is that they have this whole spiel where she's in front of Snagglepuss. And it's like one of the few moments where I feel like she, you almost become like swayed into their camp. Yeah. Where she goes, let's say we're at war with Russia. 
and there's a bomber over the head. What's going through his mind? Mm-hmm. Is it his family? Is it his duty to country? Is it his white picket fence? What is going through his mind when it's time to drop the bomb? Yeah, is it subverts and these degenerates that are out there in the streets making a mockery of the American dream? Or right. is it his family? Like, right. w- and will he do it at right. that point? Right, and there's one moment say? of hesitation, mm-hmm. and that could be the end of us all. Right. And I don't agree with it, but the passion that's mm-hmm. displayed in that monologue, where she just goes, you think this is a game, you joke and you mock us up here, but I'm sitting here looking at this and going, I don't have the luxury of entertainment. Yeah. I think this could be the end of us all. And so... While it is totally hypocritical that she goes home to her gay lover, she sees herself as an exception. And Mm -hmm. she goes, what I do, like, I think she probably goes, what I do is wrong. But if what I did was on public display, it could threaten the underpinnings. of Like, it just shows the, like, contradiction. It shows the the kind of internal war in American Mm -hmm. culture. It shows this duality and this, like... And Marshall's been right. My wife's been reading this great book called Sapiens, and she had a really good point recently. I, I need to read the book, but it talked about how you can't truly understand a culture or a people until you understand what is the underlying contradiction of their core philosophies. And that if you want to understand, like the Middle Ages, Christianity, which they wage war for, says we have to turn the other cheek. If someone takes your property, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Life is more important. But then they say, your name is everything. Your legacy lives on. If someone does you wrong, you kill them because your family's honor's on the line. These are contradictory philosophies. Right. And so Gigi Allen's character in this book, in a lot of ways, is this manifestation of she's gay, but she also believes that being gay openly and publicly and in art is like going to lead to the nuclear apocalypse and destruction of America. Yeah, that everything's World on War the line. III. Yeah. Sorry, I know that's kind of a long rant. It's just, no, it's just no, it, this it, book it, just makes me spiral down these thought processes. And that's the exact, <laughs> and I believe that's what Russell is going for. The fact that all of these characters have that contradicting, well, all the main characters have this contradicting dichotomy to them. I mean, one of the most prevalent examples of this is during the Arthur Miller, Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio aspect. Hmm. I mean, you have... You have such a great little side story in the middle yeah. of it, and like you could almost call this history. It was so, that was so good, like in that mm-hmm. it play. It's showing the impact beyond the immediate characters we're seeing who are operating right. at the highest levels. Right. So you have like the, you have the Arthur Miller character who's just a oh yeah no I'm just you know I'm, I'm hanging out with Marilyn Monroe I'm, I'm banging her on the side it's great it's awesome by the way I'm writing the Crucible yeah it's uh, it's about witches and the Salem witch trial it's pretty much McCarthyism thin veils. And then Marilyn Monroe is just a, listen, I want to be an actress, and I'm here for two things. Either men lust after me, or they're there to criticize me. Right. And Joe DiMaggio is there as being a, it doesn't matter how many home runs I hit, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm still going to be the son of immigrants. I'm. They took my father's fishing boat away, and to that end... He's the only person that views Marilyn Monroe in one of those other dichotomies to where he's like, that's what I can never be. Right. Never be this true all-American because I'm because my family is not from here. And I wonder if Mark Russell's pulling from, and maybe this is a reach or me just like doing a stupid flex, but like mm-hmm. if you look at American gangster films, right? You look yeah. at any any like any James Cagney movies, anything mm-hmm. from like any decade in America, gangster films are marked by two major traits. The lead is usually an immigrant mm-hmm. with some sort of like heavy accent. Yes. Right. They're gonna be like, ah, say, right. It's not even just a evil link, like they're it's an Italian caricature. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they tend to be a immigrant who brandishes their immigrant status all the time, mm-hmm. who is becoming wealthy and powerful, but they are almost always locked out of popular social culture. Right. You can never become a blue-blooded American as an Italian in a in a gangster film. Yeah. And in, it, there's kind of a subtext at all times of like, no matter how powerful they become, no matter what they become, mm-hmm. main people still scoff at them. They'll show yeah. up in their be- their suit and they've got diamonds all over their hands and, yeah. and everyone's like afraid of them. But then the people who are like the Kennedys, the Vanderbilts, yeah. right? The, 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 the blue bloods, of the, exactly. Yeah. They'll yeah. look at them and they're just like, who let the rabble in? Yeah. They have the same amount of money they do. Mm-hmm. They could kill people at the, at the with a snap of a finger. Mm-hmm. But And the thing is, the characters are constantly plagued by that. They don't say it out loud. They go, I wish people would accept me. Because mm-hmm. that's too whiny for a, gangs, uh, a mob leader. Right. But everything they do is to kind of scream, like, accept me. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's a vocal 
frustration of being a non-accepted immigrant. Right. And I think that that scene, when I watched that, when I was reading that and reading about the sexism, the like, everyone wants to see my movies, yet everyone would hate for their wives or daughters to be what I am. Right. Right. They want, they want to fuck a woman like me, but they don't want to be associated with a woman like me. Right. And then Joe DiMaggio is like, no matter the superstar I am, every American considers me the greatest, yet I will never be American. And I think right. like, this book just, it, it doesn't matter what's touching on. It just hits these cultural moments that are so powerful. And like, even still relevant to this day with everything. Duh. Like that, like like that, that that goes without saying because we're still dealing with you know. Why well, do you think Mark Russell wrote this story in a lot of ways? Exactly. <laughs> he wants to relate it. He has a he has an uh, a bit in the end of the book all about like look, I'm sorry, it's politics, but like he has a thing about Trump and like like literally writes about him in the book. And so whether mm-hmm. you agree with it or not, he's trying to link these these American historical and social moments to current events, saying like this doesn't end. Like this this othering of people and this idea of weaponizing patriotism continues like you don't tell a story because it's over you tell a story because it's relevant or you're late well you tell a story because you believe it needs to be told right and so again like i'm sorry i know this politics world i'm sorry if y'all disagree with it or agree with it whatever the point being that like that is what mark russell is saying that's kind of my point and he he's trying to link this to current events it's very interesting in that way and you you know Wonder right. Twins, you're saying, has been kind of doing that a lot too. Yeah, it's well, it's uh, because it is focused more towards the young adult audience in Wonder Twins. Right. It is a lot of things that you know young adults, I believe, think about, or at least like kind of you know back of the brain. It's not going like a oh the president's this and that. What is it? it's more of like a oh, it looks like you got friend zoned. It's like oh 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 what do you mean friend zoned? Like oh yeah no no she's she's not trying to have sex with you. She's dating some other guy. It's like. Well, yeah, I'm in the friend zone. I have another friend that's going to last me for the rest of my life, man. Like, if we would have dated, we would have lasted for three months and then hated each other for the rest of our lives. Like, why would I not want to be in the friend zone? Right, kind of unpacking that term. And so, right. like, with Snagglepuss, a lot of this is, like, you watch him wage this heroic war. And this mm-hmm. kind of goes back to the, the pre-comic, right? Where yeah. it's, like, he wages this heroic war against the House on American Activities yeah. Committee, knowing full well. Like, we had – in the book, there's a whole scene where um, – Huckleberry Hound shows him a note saying like they won't produce my script and he's like well that's not a big deal if I like he makes a joke like if I got if I got upset every time Mm -hmm. I got rejected I'd you know I'd be miserable and he's like it's the same typo. Oh no, that was that it's was a his, form letter. That was his friend that had that. Yeah, because they had the they had a misspelling in one of the things. I thought it was Huckleberry Hound who got that. No, it was it was one of his, it was his other friend. That oh, he had sorry, sorry, sorry. You're yeah. totally right. You're totally right. Yeah, but, and so and mm-hmm. like and then it happens to him and so he he's makes these jokes like that's kind of a fatal flaw of Snagglepuss is that like. Mm-hmm. He's earnest, but I don't think he takes the threat seriously. I don't think yeah. he realized. I actually don't think at any point he truly understands his reputation is on the line until the very end when right. he says, "I'm not going to testify. I'm going to save. I'm going to help my buddy because it's about someone else." When yeah. it relates to his own personal life, he never feels he's threatened, mm-hmm. and even to the point where the Stonewall raid, he's not even. He doesn't even feel it. It doesn't even happen to him. He's like, "Yeah, I'm sorry this happens." Yeah, and like, and it should have happened to him. Like, literally, he should have been there, and mm-hmm. by dumb luck and and random decision, he got out of it. <laughs> well, that's well, that makes me think about Snagglepuss as a character, not at him as a Tennessee Williams analogy. But do you think he is a selfish character, a selfish person? That's a really good question. Because looking at him, everything is just a. Oh, no, you'll bounce back on your feet. Aha, come here. I'm going to show you over this thing and this and that. And then just it doesn't it doesn't get into the point where he takes uh, his wife and Pablo meet. I think that is just whenever he realizes these masks that he has to wear, I think that is the key moment of him being this level one selfish character to going to level two, actually caring about other people. And that moment itself is, again, the turning point with that one Stonewall raid, which was not... Fun fact, but apparently Stonewall got raided, like, a bunch of times well, before that's what led to the rides eventually. Yeah. Is that, when, when, yeah. They, when, they, when they said, no, you're not coming in here, you're not raiding this place, we're just operating and everything. But uh, I think Snagglepuss himself inherently is a selfish character hmm. about everything that he does. However, it's not until he has to, one you know, have this meeting of the minds in which in the end of it all, it doesn't matter whether Pablo and his wife met, he loses both of them in the end. Right. 
And it was not until his friend, Huck, has that, you know, he until he decides to come to his honor to, you know, defend the blood that was spilt, does he actually lose that selfishness and stops being part, or stops thinking about himself and starts being part of the movement, the cause, the the whatever you want at that end. It's interesting, too, because um, there's actually that whole exchange with him and his wife where she's mm-hmm. like, look, I don't care that you're gay. Like, I knew that. Like, we, this was a decision for us to mm-hmm. lead your fake life. But she's like, but I can't just be carted around to events. Like, I, I do love you, and I accept that you'll never love me sexually mm-hmm. and romantically. But I think that if we're going to be husband and wife and we're going to be together, I need to be actually let into your real world. Right. And it is the irony that when he opens up and lets his worlds collide is the moment he misses the Stonewall raid is not lost. Like there's a – there's I honestly am not sure I'm equipped to unpack all the nuance to that. I'm right. Not, like, like I'm not, I'm not sure I, I, I can fully understand the weight of that moment. It's right. actually – it's one of the things you read it and you go – this is there's a lot happening here mm-hmm. and I intellectually know it's happening but I'm not sure I can articulate it. <laughs> yeah, that is and that is the thing. The book is a it's dialogue heavy and it's a real, you know, I'm not saying it's it's a quick read, it's an easy read, but it's a very simple read of a book. You can you get the message, you For understand. the dense material you're getting? Yes. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I'm that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very <laughs> it's a very easy book to read and you'll get the overall message and everything, but there's certain things in this book that I will never be able to unpack. And part of it is that we just don't live it and like I'm shocked that I just don't understand how Mark Russell is able to do this with such care. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard. Like, and there's some hard read moments. The 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 police raid on the stone wall, I believe, is the only time we see a slur in the whole book. Yeah, and it is. I will tell you, it is like heavy. It is yeah. rough. It is from the visuals. It is the most violent, awful scene. It is mm-hmm. horrific, and, and, and it ends a page too. Yeah, like it is a exclamation mark at the end of that sentence of pictures. If it wouldn't be so confusing and weird, it's the kind of thing I would put on a wall. It's, yes. it's a like from an emotional standpoint. In no way would I consider that something I want as artwork on my wall. Yeah, but that moment is just oh my god! I mm. I. I actually, sorry, I know I keep sounding like I'm light flexing, but like when I talked to Mark Russell, then I went, look, that Stonewall raid scene, I'm like, you know the moment I'm talking about. I was like, I chills down my spine, mm-hmm. right? I am like heteronormative, like a straight dude, it's you like, know? like, hi, my name's Greg. I'm a cis white male. Yeah. I'm a cis white male. And like you read How's that, it going? and it just, it rocks you. Yeah. It rocks it, uh, you. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's a... Uh, the empathy he builds in the characters. And I love how he builds Quick Draw McGraw. Yeah. Oh and, my God, that character's so good. And it, and it again, just, it adds a layer to it that's mm-hmm. so powerful. And again, it's that, you know, contradicting dichotomy of every main character, which plays into that. It is they just... They all lie. Yeah, they, they all... They're all liars. Yeah, they're, they're all wearing... And oh my God, I just put it together, Greg. Two masks. Theater. Smiling mask and frowning mask. <laughs> Everybody wears these two different masks, and uh, the overall. Right. Oh my god! Uh, I'm learning again. We're just we we continue to unpack this book the more that we read it. It's the 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 public mask and the personal mask. Well, I won't go down this rabbit hole. You could like relate that to social media. You could relate that to your professional life. You could. Yep. You could just like sure. In their case, the mask is straight and gay. You know, entertainment, mm-hmm. public life versus personal home life, but. The thing about this era that's so marked and, you know, in a lot of ways, like I can talk about all day about how we parallel current life. But I would say that in 2019, it's a lot easier to have a personal life that people aren't going to pry into. I mean, people still do. There's all kinds of things you could talk about. But like back in that period with House on American Activities Committee, Mm -hmm. they literally consider your sexual proclivities to be linked to your patriotism. And I think that you know, sure, draw parallels, draw social commentary, cool. But I will say I am so grateful that if I wasn't a cisgendered white male, if I was not a, like, straight person stuff that, like, 
I could probably live my life more or less unaccosted. Right. In no way would I say that's easy for people who live a different life. There's there's social norms that make things difficult and people face adversity. Mm-hmm. But compared to being dragged in front of a congressional committee via subpoena right. because you put out artwork. I mean, could you imagine? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just one of those, like, could you imagine us having to go fly to Washington, D.C.? Because we have a podcast. Because we have a podcast. <laughs> and we talked about how we thought that you know, Aquaman looked really good in his suit. Yeah, it's true. It's like, yeah, like, it, it's, like it, it's it's ludicrous things like that. I know we're wading into some dicey territory. I apologize. I just like, well, it does make you appreciate a lot of things in some ways. So I love in comic books and in media when they take a theory, philosophy, random event, random thing that happened, and then just build an entire chapter out of it. Uh, I once wrote a script about smoking cigarettes and related related it to oh my god what was his name there's a scientist who basically said that oh yeah stomach ulcers are caused by stress and spicy foods and all this and he's like well no i think it's a bacteria and everyone in the science community was like no bacteria can't survive in your stomach dummy it's not what it is so he they assumed stomach acid would kill anything that encounters it exactly so he said well if that's the case uh screw you guys scientific community and drank a petri dish of this bacteria called h pylori and he expected to get like one or two ulcers in like a month's time. And within like two weeks, his entire stomach and duodenum were filled with ulcers. Proving that like, no, I had to do this for science purposes for me to like, you know, figure this out. And this was in like the 80s. So like even in the 80s, people were still drinking Petri dishes of stuff to prove things with science. And, <laughs> and what Mark Russell does is he brings this idea of the Russell paradox in. And it's not his own paradox, which I had to research. He did not make this up. And it's basically the idea of, so in a town, let's say every guy is clean shaven in the town. Oh, oh, this yeah. is actually a, a set theory problem. Yeah, set theory. Yeah, so basically. To get into, because set theory at the time was thought to be, uh, everyone wanted to bring mathematics back to logical foundations, right? And so set theory was going to be the thing that did that. You prove two plus two equals four, not just by induction or putting two things. Like you can have a set where you have the set of all possible outcomes and you can- Basically makes it self-evident. Yeah. Well, all of math comes down to just basic logical principles and you can go off from there. The problem is it's impossible because uh, logic itself is full of paradoxes. Right. Resident engineer, Daniel Desimone. But so the example though See, he gives. The only gives, time I come in is for for this nerd shit. It's like I did this and P equals NP. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the the shaver, the the barber paradox yeah. is so it's actually fascinating and yeah. they display it in the book. It's really good. Right. It's it, and it kind of even more subtly plays into who watches the Watchmen. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Right. So Desi, with that in mind, like explain the the barber shaver paradox for us. Or the Russell paradox, really, but as displayed through a barber. Yeah, so the book actually did a really good job of explaining it. Like, a better yeah. job than probably I've ever seen. Because usually people kind of half-ass it. Um, because they don't think about people getting shaved that often anymore. Um, but so you have a town full of men. And everybody is clean-shaven. Uh, and the only two ways to get shaven are to shave yourself at home or go to the barber. Problem is, what does the barber do? Does the barber go to the barber or does the barber shave himself so Problem he exists is, in both sets he's in both sets but he's also not in either set like yeah. he's, it's a paradox you can't put him clearly in one side and that's the problem with set theory is that you end up with these situations where something doesn't fit in your sets and there is no logical conclusion uh and so that's why set theory never turned out to be this bring all of math up from logical principles. The grand thing. unifying theory. Yeah, that's why it didn't work out. <laughs> well, that's why I, lo- I actually, on a side note, I love stuff like that. I love the whole, like, you'll have this assertion of something that's kind of like mm-hmm. the solution to something, and then the the uh, problem with it is actually very simple. Right. So the deontological argument is actually a very famous one. Um, it was a uh, uh, Pascal's wager. Are y'all familiar with Pascal's wager? No, indeed. So Pascal's wager says, okay, um, there are four options when it comes to belief in God, right? If you believe in God, two things happen. If he doesn't exist, nothing happens. If he does exist, eternal reward. If you don't believe in God, two things happen. Eternal damnation or nothing happens. So obviously, choosing to believe in God is the better wager because nothing good happens from not believing in God. Makes yeah. sense, yeah. right? The problem with Pascal's wager is called 
in God, in the Hagfin God. So it basically says, okay, well, this is a problem with saying anything self-evident. So you could say, okay, well, I'm going to say there's anti-God. Anti-God rewards you for not believing in God. <laughs> so you literally just do the inverse. Yeah. And so basically Pascal was like, I've solved belief in religion. Mm-hmm. And basically someone was like, you could literally flip it because absence of evidence. Yeah. So it's like, it's the classic burden of proof falls on the person yeah. making a claim. Now, this is not an argument to say believe or God or not believe in God. The point being, it's a logical fallacy. Right. And so with set theory, what I love about that is... I want everyone to know Greg has a flying spaghetti monster shirt on right now. I do not have a flying spaghetti monster <laughs> shirt on. <laughs> I do not. I am not that edgelordy. Sorry for people who are wearing it. So, but the the, the point being that, like, it, I love the Russell Paradox story. And, the, and you're right, Desi. Like, yeah. the way they depicted it... Kudos to Mark Russell, man. Like, that was... Oh, no, it was great. It was very straightforward. It was, like, there was no joke or does the groomer who shaves all of the local animal hybrid things in town. <laughs> like, it, it could have made it weird. And they didn't. It was just very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Just to point out, they totally bojack the hell out of this with, like, animals and humans. It's just, like, it's not, like, yeah, it was just a thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of the animals have It's pants. irrelevant. Like, the, the cop's a horse. Yeah. <laughs> with no pants. <laughs> no. Oh, it's like, You're and, right. He doesn't wear pants. Yeah, there's no way. It's, it's cartoon characters. They don't wear pants. And, and yeah, and interspecies uh, can breed, and it's not a weird half hybrid thing it's like nope it's either a human or a weird an- or an anthropomorphic animal done but my main thing what i brought about the russell paradox was i love it whenever comic books bring in these abstract thoughts and concepts and everything to explain something happening like with swamp to thing, explain people yeah well, like like swamp <laughs> thing in the planarian thing they had i was yeah. like okay that's weird but i'm glad you brought it in there yeah and one one final thing i love about this book is the level of just I know Mark Russell, I'm pretty sure Mark Russell thought about this whole thing as being an absurdist, just thought experiment. And no spoilers, because you have to read it. The final scene in the book involving the cornfield that actually happened. Dude, I remember you were, when I finished this book, you were texting me and you go, how about that food fight? It is, (laughs) it is, quite frankly, I didn't know it was real. Until I researched, you know, about what happened with that one. And, yeah, it's absurd. It is absolutely absurd. And on that end, uh, the only other thing I need to say, closing closing arguments with this whole thing, is check out, if, you, uh, if you're interested in this, check out the Green Lantern Huckleberry Hound uh, crossover issue they had. Uh, again, written by Mark Russell for a single one-shot issue of Young Huckleberry Hound. Uh, getting involved with the civil rights movement in the 1960s. As well as Green uh, Lantern. As well as Green Lantern, the John Stewart yep. Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Uh, former or retired Marine, all of that wonderfulness and all the issues that happened uh, through that lens of the 1960s civil rights movement. So I think the takeaways from this are there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> under the hood. Um we didn't really talk about the art a whole lot, but the use of frames, the emotion, the faces, the faces are, I mean, I'm looking at the Stonewall scene right now and right. the concern on the different characters and the hate and vitriol on other characters. I mean, it, it, it's so powerful. It's so visually striking. I mean, look, it's not, it's not some sort of beautiful painterly thing. It's just nice, clean digital art mm-hmm. with very powerful emotion displayed and you know it gets playful with the borders it Mm -hmm. gets uh um the scene we're talking about the stonewall earlier there's tons of people breaking through the borders i think you know there's a lot of good visual symbolism symbolism going on uh color palettes are fun scene to scene they get Mm -hmm. very consistent we haven't really talked a lot about fian but the fact of the matter is he did masterful work uh the colorist also and fian gave a lot of credit to him too between the shadowing and the coloring and just the the power and I, I don't know, man. It's it's a visually striking book. The variant covers are gorgeous. Yes. Um, part All of the fun of the digital artists. version is mm-hmm. like thumbing through those. And uh, I I definitely say that the story is powerful. The colors, the the visuals are powerful. Uh, it's it's uh, there's I mean I'm just looking at reflections in the cars right now. There's just a lot of nuance and detail going on. So yeah, it's it's an it's a gorgeous book. 
really is. No matter what, no matter what, the, yeah. it, it, even if you don't care about the social commentary or anything else, the book is absolutely gorgeous to look at. Yeah. So ratings, huh? I think so. Dave's, I mean, Dave's I right mean, to segue in, baby. I mean, uh, I mean, Greg, I'm pretty sure both you and I agree with this at the same point. Uh, it's a bar. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. It is a buy, 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 buy to the extreme on my end. It's a gorgeous book. It's a wonderful book. It's something that you can reread over and over again and get something small but new every single time you read it. It's uh, ain't no lie, baby. Bye, 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 mm-hmm. bye, bye. <laughs> so I had to, if I'm gonna fill the Davis role, I gotta throw something in like that. <sighs> it's uh, I own it. I I bought two copies on in stock trades. One for Davis, one for myself. Woo-woo. I've got it digitally. Um, I occasionally will buy a hard copy of a book that I own digitally already, and this made the list. Yep. Uh, I've read it three times now, twice of my own volition, a third time for this this episode. I know we were all over the place in this, but honestly, I'd say it's less distraction and nonsense and more just that this book brings you everywhere. Yes. It you could strictly talk about the American legal system in Congress. You could talk strictly about LGBT rights. You could talk strictly about the way we treat art. Yeah, you, it, can, you it, can talk about being an artist. You can talk yeah. about being a Southerner out of place. Like, right. it's just everything in between. Sorry, didn't mean to, didn't mean to road you. No, up. you're good. I mean, it, that's that's the truth, man. It's it. You're going to get something out of it, and you're going to miss a lot, and that's okay. Like, I love a good comic where I walk away going, yeah, when I read this again, I'm going to pick up a lot more. I, I just think that it, it's a beautiful piece of art. It's uh, The story is important. Uh, I think that... Anyone who doesn't know about the history of the House Un-American Activities Committee, this is a good reason to learn more about it mm-hmm. as anyone. The the Lavender Scare and the Red Scare and the way we linked political allegiances with the way you live your life. We, we, <laughs> didn't, we, didn't even, we didn't even delve into the fact that this like weird altered history that they, that they showed in the 1950s. Like right. it's some things are out of place, but it's still the same rough story. The broad strokes are accurate. Yeah. And, and the way they treated these people is true. The Hollywood blacklist is very infamous and led to mm-hmm. hundreds of people basically having their lives ruined. Right. Um, and then that's, that's the direct people, not including the, you know, you got to think about art industry. You're basically mentors to other people. This, this ruined lives lives right um and it was completely federally like mandated and i think that that's important to realize is that it's not some sort of like the government is evil or something it's just that people and values people had passions yeah and it's it's a very just dark sad moment in american history and uh i think that the classic you know you don't learn from history you're doomed to repeat it blah 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 i know it's a trope but it really is like these stories like if we don't understand what happened with McCarthy and Huak and don't understand these cultural moments. It's uh it's it's a disservice to the people who suffered under it. Yeah. Because the fight it's not meant to be won. <laughs> it's meant to show that you can fight. And what does he say at the end? He goes like, what was it for? Snagopus even doubts after all this. Like mm-hmm. why did I do this? And they go, You did it doesn't matter that, you know, the Stonewall was shut down. You prove like this proved that such things are possible. Yeah. And it like empowers people. Mm-hmm. I, I think this book is incredibly empowering and very just. Ugh, it's so it's so good. It's so good. So there you have it, folks. Greg and I both a buy. Desi's reading it right now for the most part. Did you already finish it in the time I, recording? I did not finish it yet. I'm at like one thirteen out of one sixty or something. Fantastic. Almost there. And what, what what's your inclination so far? Um... <laughs> I feel like you know it, it's extremely heavy-handed, and you get sure. you can get away with it because of the ridiculous setting. Sure, but that doesn't make it not heavy-handed. Sure. Uh, oh, no one would ever say Mark Russell has a delicate touch. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, but it's, it's just like it's like the, the medium gives you excuse. Like if it wasn't in the medium it's in, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be uh, as good. And I don't know what to make of that. But just the uh, fact you that you say that about video plus. games. <laughs> well, the video games are terrible plot-wise. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm actually playing one that's about the Iranian Revolution in 1979. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. It's called it's called Revolution 1979. It's an interactive story of the. Yeah, Iranian it's called uh, it's called CS:GO. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, uh, <my> <sighs> on that note. <laughs> on that note, everybody. 
Oh, uh, we are Jacks of Trades podcast minus Mike uh, for right now. He will return eventually, maybe, kind of, who knows. But you can find us on jackstradespodcast.com. Jacks of Trades podcast.com? Yes. Oh, I thought it was. You and Mike keep skipping the of. It drives me crazy. You can find us on jacksoftradespodcast.com, jacksoftradespodcast at gmail.com, www.facebook.com slash jackstradespod, twitter.com slash jackstradespod, and www.instagram.com slash jackstradespod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify on all of these mediums. Uh, like us, heart us, thumb up us. Retweet us, hashtag us, rate us, review us, send us feedback, give us anything, everyone. We want to hear from you, the the, the you know the, the lovely Jackie listeners that we have here. Uh, it's it, it's yeah, it's it's what we want. We want you to be as an interactive part of this podcast as possible. We're also working on our NFL draft episode too, so uh, be oh. ready for that. We uh we, we might try to share with y'all. We're, we're gonna see what we're gonna do with that. Uh, Mike and I've been kicking some ideas around about what direction to go. It is not going to be the same as last year. Well, good. So That's I'm excited I to see love, what we do with it. What I love to hear. What I love to hear. And on that note, uh, thank everybody for listening. Uh, I'm Davis, and I'm Greg. And remember, folks, the purpose of art is subversion, and the purpose of podcasts are information.